Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Continued war in Ukraine, senseless violence in a subway in Brooklyn, the tax man cometh, inflation really is as bad as we feared, and, oh yes, Elon Musk has decided he wants to buy all of Twitter. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a shortened trading week in the United States because of the Good Friday holiday, which postponed the day of tax reckoning until April 18. But holidays and taxes did not slow down preparations for a showdown in eastern Ukraine that retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmett says could be decisive. I see this third phase concentrating their forces in the Donbass potentially be a game change, but I also think there's some opportunities for the Ukrainians uh, in this phase as well. And sadly, there was no stopping a man from detonating smoke bombs and opening fire on a crowded subway train in Brooklyn, shooting 10 people. A man who, by Wednesday, New York's police commissioner and mayor were confident they had in custody. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. 
My fellow New Yorkers, we got them. The much anticipated inflation numbers came in every bit as hot as anticipated. In March, the CPI went up 1.2%. That's what was forecast. It was up eight-tenths of a percent the month before. And on a uh, year-over-year basis, we're up 8.5%. Though some, like Jim Paulson of Luthold, expressed hope that this might just be the peak. I still think, though, this is a uh, is likely to roll over in the second half of this year. And we might be seeing this morning the peak in CPI inflation rate. Five of the big banks reported their second quarter earnings this week, and with all but Wells Fargo exceeding expectations, trading coming in particularly strong at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. But overall, overall, the markets were in a selling mood for much of the week, with stocks down, the S&P by 2.4 percent, and the Nasdaq by almost 4 percent, driven once again by the rise in bond yields. And the 10-year Treasury added almost 13 basis points on Thursday to end the trading week just over 2.8 percent. To take us through what we saw in this shortened trading week, we welcome now Jillian Tett, Financial Times Chair of the Editorial Board and Editor-at-Large U.S., and Peter Krauss, Aperture Investors Chairman and CEO. So, Peter, let me start with you. What were the markets trying to teach us this week, and did it have to go beyond bonds, or was it really all about bonds in the end? The market is right now is all about what is the growth rate going forward and where is inflation going to peak, and that is what's driving uh, the, the yield curve. And it's also driving what will ultimately be Fed's behavior in terms of interest rate hikes and in terms of uh, the cessation of bond purchases and the reduction of the balance sheet. Those two things together, that's what's causing the interest rate curve to actually steepen. Uh, And you saw consumer uh, conditions come out, the University of Michigan current conditions, Michigan expectations and expectations for inflation were actually more optimistic than what uh, than what was expected. So. I think we probably have, and I'm a little bit of a, of a contrarian here, we probably have not a recession. We probably have a slowdown in growth, but a persistent expansion. But that has got to be accompanied by significant increases in interest rates and a reduction in QE. And that is what we expect. So, Jillian, can you have that significant increase in rates and the reduction of the balance sheet and not have a recession? Because a lot of people are concerned about that. Well, I think there is certainly a very significant risk that we're heading towards stagflation, which is something that, frankly, most investors don't actually know how to deal with because we've not seen it since the 1970s. And there aren't that many people around have actually traded it actively who are still on trading desks. Um, You know, I slightly disagree with Peter. I think the Fed has got way behind the curve. And I think that this is really the week when the markets began to wake up to that. And really understand that there is going to be a series of potentially quite dramatic interest rate rises this year. Um, We cannot guarantee that that's going to not put the economy into recession. We've had people like Jim Bullitts come out and say this um, this week that it would be a complete fantasy to think that you can actually take away this level of inflation and bring it back down just by tinkering with a few interest rate rises. I mean, the Fed really is is signaling some quite serious Um, interest rate rises coming down the track. And I think the thing that's really alarming for people right now is that although it would be convenient to blame all of these price hikes on Vladimir Putin and the energy complex, if you talk to people in business today who are dealing with supply chains, with warehouses, with trying to hire people, there is an absolutely universal message coming across that wages are going up, conditions are tight, and inflation is anything but 
transitory, to use that um, phrase that was tossed around last year, and you can't just blame that on the Russian invasion. Julian's right, but the controversy in the data is that if wages are going up and labor conditions are tight and unemployment is dropping, that is not a condition for recession. A condition for recession is wages are flat and going down, you're losing jobs, people are then therefore not going to spend, and that's what causes a recession. So we don't have a recession. We have growth. Now, whether we have stagflation or not, it's an interesting question. We haven't seen stagflation, frankly, since the 70s and uh, the 80s. And that was accompanied by a significant oil shock, much, much greater than we have today. So I'm a, I'm a bit dubious about stagflation. I do think we're going to see a significant rise in interest rates. But let's just examine that for a second. If the two to 10 year was 100 basis points in difference, which is actually not, not, not abnormal, quite normal, you would have a 10-year rate of 3.4%, which would be 60 basis points higher than where it is today, a substantial rise. That wouldn't be unusual. Okay, Peter Krauss and Julian Satter are going to be staying with us. As we turn from markets this week to the effect of the war in Ukraine on investors next week and beyond. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The truth is that the American tradition, despite our globally renowned fondness for firearms, has profound strains of pacifism and isolationism at its core. From our founding fathers' outspoken commitment to no entangling alliances, right through to the excesses of the America Firsters, this has been a nation historically suspicious of international involvements, and so reluctant to race into battle that we were conspicuously late entrance into both world wars. That was Louis Schreckheiser on Wall Street Week way back in 1996, expressing his concern over possible U.S. withdrawal from the world stage at a time that looks very different from now, when the United States is sending hundreds of millions of dollars worth of armaments to Ukraine and leading a coalition of countries to impose severe economic sanctions on Russia for its invasion. Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors and Jillian Tett of the Financial Times are still with us. So, Jillian, let me turn first to you. As I look at that and I look what's going on right now and look at what this means for investors, we do have a big war going on with a lot of tragedy and a lot of potential consequences for geopolitics. Are we ch- seeing potentially a change in the world economic order as well? We're absolutely seeing a change in the world economic order. Um, you know, that wonderful Francis Fukuyama phrase that we lived in the end of history at the beginning or the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, has been shown to be completely wrong because essentially history has been going backwards And we're seeing what we thought was a world that was globalizing as a whole, essentially fragmenting into the US-China spheres of influence, the so-called bamboo curtain, to cite um, Hank Paulson, and the increasing split between the Western bloc and the Slavic Russian bloc, if you like, the new caviar curtain. Um, So you're essentially seeing two and a half, potentially three different areas emerging. And that is really a very big shift that we haven't seen this kind of magnitude of upheaval for several decades. Uh, Peter, we've had Larry Fink recently saying he thinks it's the end of globalization, which I think a lot of people thought was overblown. That's way too soon to call that. But are we seeing, as Jillian suggests, perhaps at least a dividing up in part into some blocks around the world, which is quite different from where we thought we were headed? Yeah. I, look, I, I do think that this uh, Russian uh, incursion into Ukraine that has created a geopolitical shift is going to reverberate through not only political affiliations, but also 
economic affiliations. I think to say that globalization is dead is way overblown. Uh, I don't think that that's even in the cards. But I do think that there are going to be numerous places in which companies are going to decide to actually accept a higher cost of manufacture and thinking they can pass that through to the to the consumer. And so you're going to have higher structural inflation as a result of that. Now, will that structural inflation be offset by techno- technological advances and innovations? It, it, it may well be, but I think clearly we're going to see a change. The more interesting question to me about vis-a-vis globalization is this trading block point that you raised. China has attempted and still attempts to actually establish a contrary trading block to the U.S. and its allies. The U.S. and its allies are far, far bigger. If the U.S. and its allies, through this geopolitical change, decide to actually operate in a more concerted fashion, as happened after World War II, that's going to create an enormous issue for the Chinese and other people in that other block, because they need to trade with this with this Western block, and they need to trade significantly with it. So it's it's sort of up to the Western democracies and the Asian democracies about how they play this. If it all balkanizes and people go their separate ways, that's probably not a good thing for the economics and for the markets. If there is some sense of cohesion and an attempt to create more free trade capability between that block, I think that's actually an increase in economic activity and good for markets. Jillian, is it possible that what we might give up in sort of a, a convenient dealing with one another where some countries will be made up for in other places? That is to say, is it likely this would drive a closer union with, for example, Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, even Taiwan? Well, there is a optimistic scenario, which is, you know, tossed around, say, the chip sector or various parts of industry right now, which is that, Okay, so America can no longer count on China as being the factory of the world. It can no longer count on having this labor supply side shock where suddenly wages are depressed because you can outsource everything to China. Let's bring it back into into North America, maybe put more factories into Mexico. You'll create more jobs back in the U.S. And guess what? You'll be environmentally more green as well because you won't be you know, moving things around so much. That's a kind of optimistic scenario of essentially this reshuffling of the geopolitical order. Um, the pessimistic scenario, though, is that, of course, many commodities and raw materials are not found within the allied trading bloc at the moment. And you can't suddenly create lithium mines overnight, even though Elon Musk tweeted that he'd like to um, this week. Um, another problem is that it's not clear that America has a workforce for even um, supporting some massive reshoring of its manufacturing industrial base. And yes, maybe you can give it all to robots, um, but you know, even robots um, can't necessarily be the easy answer right now. So, so Peter, let me ask you, this is Wall Street week after all, uh, help me make some money here. If in fact there is what Jillian just called a reshuffling of the world order, where does that tell me I should put my money right now? Well, look, I, you can't answer that question and say, put your money here for the next two weeks, three weeks, a month, whatever. Right. You have to look at this over a longer period of time, but like Europe is clearly made the statement that they're going to invest in their energy infrastructure, which means alternative energy. They're going to invest in defense. Uh, and those two areas have enormous um, tentacles throughout their economies and all kinds of companies that will benefit from that. I do think there will be some attempt in the United States to actually build some uh, uh, semiconductor and chip capability that 
people are concerned about as having have been offshored. So you're going to see investments in that. You can see it in the Intel announcements and the attempt to build uh, large plants in the South. So I, I don't think it takes a great deal of imagination to see where to put your money over the long term. I still think this quest, this geopolitical question that, that Jillian and I are sort of touching on is a big deal. And the longer term trends and the bigger opportunity to make money is trying to figure out where that is going to fall. Peter, there was one other event that certainly shook those of us in New York and around Wall Street this week. And that was that shooting in the crowded Brooklyn subway. Uh, as somebody who spent so much time on Wall Street, do you think that may have longer term effects, particularly as we try to bring workers back to work? It's shaken up a lot of people. I think it's a terrible tragedy and it's horrible for New York. But New York survived 9-11. It survived many other things and we will survive this and we will continue on. Okay, thank you so very much to Jillian Tett of the Financial Times and Peter Krause of Aperture Investors. Coming up, it's tax time in the United States, and we turn to the man most identified with getting our taxes down, Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. April 15 is the time of year when most of those of us in the United States turn to taxes. Though this year, the Good Friday holiday gives us an extra weekend to get them done. But whatever the time of year and wherever you are, taxes loom large for all investors. What do tax rates mean for how much we invest? What do they mean for when we invest? And for that matter, when we cash out? And how does the structure of the tax code affect where we invest. Grover Norquist has devoted his career to addressing questions just like these. He is the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. That's an organization that President Ronald Reagan urged him to start back in 1985. So, Grover, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You are the man on taxes. And let me ask you, going all the way back to 1985, when I look at the percentage of federal revenues as a percentage of GDP through about that period of time, it has not gone up, even from the days of Ronald Reagan. Have you succeeded? Should you declare a victory? Well, yes, in the sense that uh, the goal is to have the government take less of people's resources and allow them to have more freedom and more liberty and to have businesses invest based on what's a good investment, uh, not you know, what tax policies are. So uh, I'm happy that we've stopped a lot. We've taken the rates down dramatically. Remember, top rate was 70% when Reagan walked in the door. Uh, it got down as low as 28%. Unfortunately, Bush let that back up. But uh, there's more to be done at the national level. The reduction of the corporate income tax that the Republicans did in 2017 uh, made us more competitive with China. The danger with the tax increase, one of the tax increases that Biden's looking at, taking the top rate to 28, uh, corporate rate, the corporate, that would put it up higher than China, higher than anyone we compete with in Europe. When we were at 21, we were much more competitive. We are at 21 now. But if we go back up to 28 and you have to add, most states have a state corporate income tax, we become very uncompetitive with China, Japan, Europe. As you know better than I, it's not just the marginal rate that counts. It's the total tax burden. And if you look at OECD countries, in fact, they have VAT taxes, other taxes they pay. And there's a Peterson Institute study that actually says we're at the bottom of the pack when it comes to OECD countries, the competitors. What do you say about those numbers? Well, we have less spend, less taxation as a percentage of our income, as a percentage of our assets. Uh, which is good. That's why we've historically grown faster than Europe. That's why we're 
the GDP is stronger in the United States per capita than, than other places. Uh, the value-added tax that they have in Europe is how they got government bigger. There's a certain point at which you can't get any more blood out of the turnip with individual tax rates, both on companies and on individuals. We're probably above that point now. Uh, but the Europeans have decided you can increase the size of the government with a value-added tax, which is in some cases 21, 25 percent uh, in Europe. It's a sales tax at all levels of production. And that's one of the ideas that some in America have. Why don't we have a carbon tax, which would then become the VAT tax, then we'd look like Europe. And I guess my argument is if you want to see innovation, growth, job creation, you don't want to look like Europe. Uh, Gover, is there a right number for the percentage of GDP that should be taxed? I mean, there's something called Hauser's Law that I've read about that says basically, no matter what the marginal rate is in the United States going back to 1945, we come out with somewhere between 17 and 20 percent. Right now, I think we're about 17.9 percent. Is there a right number? I think you, you find that out by bringing it down and seeing if it gets you more growth. You certainly saw when Coolidge cut tax rates, you saw strong economic growth until Hoover raised them. Uh, and then when John F. Kennedy cut marginal tax rates, you had strong growth until Nixon raised taxes. And with Reagan, you had the strong growth until Bush and then Clinton raised taxes. So it's we've been getting towards a point which may maximize revenue. I'm not sure maximizing revenue is the key. I'd like to maximize growth and job creation uh, and innovation. Uh, certainly, we, we learn a lot from the states. There are 50 states. Eight of them have no personal income tax at all, and they tend to be doing better than other states. People move to Texas and Tennessee and Washington State uh, and Florida. Uh, and now there are another and there are another eight states that have single rate taxes. So even Democrat or, or progressive states like Massachusetts and uh, Illinois have lower income tax rates on individuals. Five percent in Massachusetts, about four percent in Illinois because it's a flat rate tax, and that's difficult for politicians to raise, easier uh, to reduce. But there are now eight states that have income taxes that are phasing those out. You just saw the vote in Georgia to begin phasing out uh, the income tax to zero. Uh, Mississippi's done the same thing. Louisiana did last year. Uh, Iowa, uh, top rate individual, six and a half down to a 4%, under 4% flat rate, with the goal of then taking it down uh, to zero. It's awfully hard to have a meaningful discussion on taxes without talking to Grover Norquist. Grover, thank you so much for your time today. That's Grover Norquist. David, thank he you. He's president and founder of Americans for Tax Reform. Coming up, we wrap up the shortened holiday week with Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are joined once again this week by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we got those CPI numbers out. They came in just about as bad as everybody expected they would. Let me ask you, do you think we're peaking in the inflation now? Because some people think this is about the peak. I think we're probably peaking for the next several months. There was a huge component from gasoline this month that I don't think will be repeated in the next several because of the base year effects. I think the number is going to come down. Whether we're peaking indefinitely, I'm not at all. Sh I'm not certain that that's going to happen. It'll depend on luck, and it'll also depend on the decisions that uh, the Federal Reserve uh, makes. 
And one of the questions is how sticky it's going to be. There's this trimmed mean way of calculating inflation, which is now up at 6%. It's the longest in history since 1984. What do you make of that? Look, uh, there's been an effort, as there always is when you have inflation, to dismiss it as due to specific or temporary uh, factors. That is much more wrong uh, than right. You can see it when you take out all the extreme observations in both directions, as that calculation does. You can see it, as I've emphasized, by looking at uh, the wage wages, which are the ultimate source of costs uh, in uh, the economy. We've got a pretty fundamental uh, inflation uh, problem in our country. You know, David, I saw something recently that brought this home to me. Uh, people think of us as having had 13, 14 percent inflation in the 1970s, but that's only because of the way it was calculated then. If you use the same way we calculate inflation now, it got just above 10 percent in the 1970s. So getting to eight and a half, we're actually closer to being back there than I think most people realize. So given that, and that's a really interesting fact, I must say, I did not know that. Given that, what should the Fed's realistic goal be right now? I mean, they cannot get it back to 2% by next month, goodness knows. No, look, I think we need to go back to the old idea of price stability as being when people aren't thinking about inflation as part of regular economic calculations. And we need to move away from the detailed fixation with numerical targets, which it seems to me has led us to uh, unhealthy places. So I'd go back to a general definition of price stability, but we are nowhere close uh, to that uh, right now. And I would worry about the clamor of voices that are saying that, you know, 4% inflation could be okay, or even that inflation above three. Uh, could be okay. I think we need to be very determined to come way down from where we are right now. Uh, Larry, there was a Bank of America survey of fund managers out this week, uh, and the, the big headline was concerns about stagflation. It's higher than it's been since certainly 2008 or so. Uh, how concerned should we be about stagflation? I think it's the most likely place we're going to be. If stagflation means... Uh, rising unemployment and still high inflation, I think that's the preponderant probability as to where we're going to get over the last uh, couple of years, as I've, over the next couple of years. As I've said before on your show, David, uh, the painful fact that needs to inform our view is that we've never had a moment when unemployment was below four, inflation was above four, and we avoided recession for the next two, for the subsequent two years. And right now, unemployment's well below four, and inflation is well above four. Lots of people say, look, the job market is so strong, why would anyone think we're going to have a recession? What the data show is that the lower unemployment is, the more likely it is that it's going to uh, turn down in subsequent months. 
So that was last week. Next week, of course, we have those meetings in Washington, the IMF and the World Bank. In anticipation of that, it appears, the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, had a speech before the Atlantic Council this week in which she really said, we've got to decide which side we're on, apparently pointing her finger sort of at China, saying you need to decide where you're going to come out because of the conflict with Russia over Ukraine. What about the use of uh, international uh, economic and monetary forums to really address things like national security? Look, there's plenty we need to work out with respect uh, to China. But let's start with the fact that the United States has now committed no funds to international COVID relief efforts. Let's start with the fact that the United States is a massive laggard with respect to climate change commitments because we haven't been able to pass anything through Congress. Let's start with uh, the fact that Russia is earning more export revenue than it was before the war, and the ruble is stronger than it was because our European allies are uh, continuing to import oil on a substantial scale. I think we need to start in those places before uh, we go after China. I think Secretary Yellen has been enormously successful in her leadership on global tax issues, including bringing China into that regime. But the U.S. Congress uh, isn't there. And I think that's a hugely important uh, thing. I think that we do need to uh, address the Chinese in a strong uh, way, but we need to make a decision as to whether the U.S. strategy is to use international financial institutions as a strategy and a route to cooperating with China in those spheres where cooperation remains possible, or we need to conceptualize those institutions entirely as means of containing, disciplining, and limiting uh, China. We haven't really given entirely clear signals on that. I think we should still be trying to take uh, the former approach of using them as tools for engaging China. Finally, I hope that we're going to see in the next months a U.S. strategy that's clear and explicit uh, towards the World Bank. It seems to me that as climate change has loomed larger and larger as a problem, as there has been a major pandemic uh, issue, as the need for relief around the world has uh, stepped up, the bank has really not uh, stepped up as a major player. And given that the U.S. is the largest shareholder and appoints the president, the U.S. has a responsibility at this point to energize the bank. Thank you so much. Larry Summers, our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Death and taxes. Benjamin Franklin famously wrote that they were the only things that were truly certain. Though it turns out he took that truism from an earlier writer back in 1716. But when it comes to taxes, it's more than just the need to pay them that's certain. There's also the certainty of the debate about them, usually between the need to cut them and the need to make sure everyone is paying their, quote, fair share. 
For too long, we've lived with a tax system that is a blot, a stain on the shining mantle of our democratic government. Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built the country. I think you should be able to become a billionaire and a millionaire, but pay your fair share. And just as certain is the pledge to reform how we pay our taxes, not just get the overall level right, leading us to a recurrent debate, for example, over deductions for state and local taxes, that so-called SALT deduction that President Trump severely cut back and that Democrats, particularly from the Northeast, keep saying they will restore. This all speaks to the challenge that Democrats have before them. You did hear a restatement uh, from a number of Democrats saying that they would not support legislation that does not have the SALT tax in it. And of course, there's the recurrent claim over the capital gains treatment for so-called carried interest for private equity income. Maybe the one thing that President Trump and President Biden could actually agree on. The president very specifically campaigned against carried interest for hedge funds and for that, that, that industry. Um, that's really what he's focused on. Keeping this tax loophole, uh, which leads to uh, folks who are doing very well paying lower rates than their secretaries, uh, is not in any demonstrable way improving our economy. And now we have a new candidate for so-called tax reform. It's a billionaire's tax that would make the very wealthy pay for appreciation in their assets every year, whether or not they actually get the cash. Right now, billionaires pay an average rate of 8% on their total income. My budget contains a billionaire minimum tax because of that. A 20% minimum tax that applies only to the top one hundredth of 1%, one hundredth of 1% of the Americans will pay this tax. And so this year, as we pay those inevitable taxes, we can rest easy that people will keep talking about some kind of reform that never comes. But then again, the late great Art Buckwald warned that tax reform is taking the taxes off things that have been taxed in the past and putting taxes on things that haven't been taxed before. So maybe we shouldn't be in too big a rush for tax reform after all. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.